Please remain standing for our scripture lesson as we close out the book of 1 John. We're reading 1 John chapter 5, 19 through 21, ending on a confident note, what we know and what we shall know. Beginning in verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. Today, believe it or not, we're finishing out our study in 1 John. I think it was something like 31 installments, 5 or 6 per chapter. We're actually done. Can you believe that? So, be in prayer for your church and all our ministrations and for you as we are built up in our most holy faith. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you that we are in your presence to hear Jesus preach to us himself, his very being, his person. He's going to feed us his body and his blood in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Today we get him in the spirit of God and the gospel through our ears, faith coming by hearing and hearing by the word of God, the word of God preached. We thank you. May we be good stewards of this sermon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For Jesus Christ to be called the true God and eternal life, as he specifically is in verse 20c of our lesson for today, is to say an enormous amount about our blessed Redeemer and King. The true God and eternal life. That is who he is. The heretics of John's day... And the heretics of our day today don't like that teaching at all, that Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. People think they can have eternal life in some other form, some product, something they do or buy. But eternal life is the person of Jesus Christ who is the true God. Folks are galled by this teaching, but not the saints of the true, sincere, and yet struggling and imperfect in ourselves body of Christ. We love this doctrine. Why is it the case? Because it reminds us of who our glorious Messiah is, the true God and eternal life. There is an emphasis in these final verses of 1 John on knowing And so we're going to emphasize that a bit in today's scripture lesson and preaching. But gospel knowing always leads to something even greater, and that is why we desire to make it our goal today, by the grace of God on this resurrection day, to love God in Jesus Christ as the liberated church. Toward that end, we're going to be studying 1 John 5, 19-21, the very end of the book. The true God and eternal life, the doctrine... In Jesus Christ, the redeemed church knows everything we need to know. Did you know that? Pun intended. We know everything we need to know. There are a lot of things in life that we don't really need to know. Oh, it's convenient to know. It's nice to know. It's sort of 
helpful to know, but there is one person in life that we must know, and that is the person of our blessed Savior, Christ the Lord. And in him, we know a lot of other very valuable and helpful truths and tenets of gospel grace, all connected to him and no way separated from him, that help us live in this difficult world. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. It's also the root word for Gnostic. Perhaps John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, desired to turn the tables on the Docetist Gnostics in these last few verses because it is actually factual that in Jesus Christ, the redeemed church knows everything we need to know. First, our knowledge is a living experience of the one true God. And this is where regenerate Christian church knowledge is fundamentally, radically, completely different from every other species of even religious knowledge, let alone any other kind. Regenerative spiritual knowledge is real, no doubt about it. It's not like false or somehow otherworldly, like it exists in some other realm. No, it's real It's objective, it's empirical, it's historical. Our Messiah really did die. He did really rise from the dead. But it's profoundly more than all of that. And that is that this knowledge is supernaturally able to grasp realities that ordinary fallen sinners simply cannot grasp or know. Now this gives us compassion, doesn't make us haughty, but it's actually true and it's important that we realize it. We are able to grasp primary, foundational, unseen, and powerful realities. Ultimately, the regenerated sinner saint in love with God and faithful in his church through Jesus Christ sees and knows concepts, beings, objects, and persons that ordinary human beings, fallen in Adam, simply can't know. This is called blindness. The people in the world are blind. They do not understand. We speak a different language. In Christ Jesus, we see and know some other very important and valuable things too as well, but they're all connected to and emanate from our glorious Lord because we know and see God in and through Jesus Christ, the God-man. That's how we know and see God. Our knowledge is a living experience of the one true God through the mediation of the Son of God, M-E-D-I-A-T-I-O-N. Mediation is the coming between two parties, especially in terms of God and sinners that are great odds, and yet he makes that bridge perfectly suited. He is the one. This point was hinted at above, but here it must be plainly stated and thoroughly believed. We possess no living knowledge of God, the true God, the God that exists, the triune God, the glorious personal God, the absolute God, the only God. We have no knowledge of this God aside from the God-man, Jesus Christ our Lord. He shows us this God. He actually is the true God and eternal life. That's the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is both God and man. Christ is the Logos of John 1, 1 and following. The Word of God. 
the one through whom the Holy Trinity created the entire universe, and the one through whom the incarnated God-man is the portal by whom we behold God and the glories of the kingdom or church of God. So we see everything through him. On top of all this, everything you know or see, every human being and every creature, is in the process of collapsing into this God-man, sort of in a cosmic, glorious, spiritual black hole of goodness, coming back into Jesus Christ as God the Father continues in time and space and history, in our lifetimes and throughout all of time and space, and time of course continues because there is creation, continues in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring everything into subjection to Jesus Christ, even as per Paul's famous words in the resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, at verses 27 and 28. So everything is being brought into subjection to this great king, where it's laid at his feet and he rules and reigns forever and ever. All of life and creation is a matter of it coming back to God through Christ Jesus after the fall of man in one form or another. And that includes the reprobate as well as the elect in the church, bringing the Holy Trinity the greatest levels of glory And all of this, from our point of view, starts from the house of God, the church, and our worship on the Lord's Day. Have you ever think about that? The greatest glory God could have is what he has done through Jesus Christ. And this necessitated the fall of man into that horrible state of sin. But the wonder of what God is doing right now, and through all eternity, right up to the day of judgment, the resurrection day, and the eternal state, will bring him the greatest levels of glory possible. Let's look together now at verses 19 through 21 of 1 John 5 as we close out this wonderful little book and treasure the essential truths we know as regenerated churchmen. Keep in mind that this knowing theme really started earlier in last Sunday's text of verse 18. So we're talking about knowing things here in these verses. There are four realms of knowledge laid out for us in verses 18 through 20. The first is the security that the elect redeemed churchman has in Christ, verse 18. The second is our spiritual understanding of God's created universe, how we understand it, how we comprehend the reality around us. That's verse 19. Third, our grasp of Christ's incarnation and anointing of us, his church, verse 20a. And finally, our knowledge of and love for Jesus Christ himself, leading to the same for all three members of the Holy Trinity, verse 20b. Let us now seek to even better comprehend the essential truths we know as regenerated churchmen. First, that there is a huge difference between God's children and Satan's slaves. Verse 19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Pretty amazing statement there that John, the apostle of love, the son of thunder, makes the, the one that called himself the one Jesus loved. Let me ask, dear, dear saints, Which of these two do we prefer? 
Do we prefer being God's true and yet suffering, persecuted, troubled, and tribulation-filled children? Or do we opt for the chained and shackled state of lackeyhood of the devil, slaves of the devil? It's an honest question. It really is. It's a sincere question. Most people and all fallen sinners in Adam choose of their own fallen, foolish, and perverted will to be Satan's slaves and to accept all of his falsehoods and empty promises. And he does tell them, yeah, you can do what you want. So for a few years, few decades on earth, they pretty much do what they want. But of course, there is a great payment for that on the other end. But according to verse 19, the regenerate saints of Christ's faithful church know from whom we came, namely God. And we also know why the fallen dead world that we live in is the way it is. Isn't that helpful? So a well-informed Christian churchman who is regenerate in Christ, growing in grace, being fed by a good ministry and a healthy church, knows who one's father is, from whence he or she came, also understands why the dead world is the way it is. We don't walk around being uh, befuddled by why things are the way they are. We understand that. And the reason the world is because the way it is, because it of its own volition has given the dominion that God gave Adam, human beings in the garden, over to the devil, so that we would then serve him. It's a perversion. Now, say, John's statement here in verse 19 is pretty bold, and it takes a convicted and conviction-filled person to say such a thing. I'll, I'll read it again. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. (laughs) The religious world you live in, the evangelical world, the Christian world, they don't like this language. This is language of certainty. This is language of objective truth. This language has teeth in it. We live in a spiritual environment that shuns such clear and straightforward gospel proclamations. But we shouldn't be ashamed of this. This is the truth. Again, it doesn't make us haughty or proud. It makes us humble and grateful. It also lets us know why we are where we are, not because of us, but because of God's grace, and why the world is where it is. May we always join our brother John, the apostle, in boldly affirming that we know we are from God. And that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, that statement too needs to be qualified because, yes, it is true that humanity is given that realm over to the evil one, but there is a greater one, Christ, the ultimate king, that rules even over that and is using even the evil one's devices and ways for his glory and your good even though that requires us to suffer and to endure hardship. The essential truths we know as regenerated churchmen, that there is a huge difference between God's children and Satan's slaves, and now that everything in all of creation centers on our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 20. It's an amazing verse. 
And we know, there's that no theme again. Look, notice how verse 18 opens. We know, verse 19, we know, now verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. I'm not going to be able to do full justice to this amazing verse. I actually think it's one of the sweetest verses in 1 John, and one of the most glorious you'll find anywhere in the New or Old Testament. This verse refers specifically to both the Father and the Son, and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Father is intimated in the words, so that we may know Him who is true, and the Son is highlighted with the phrase, we are in Him who is true, And the Father and the Holy Spirit honor the incarnated God-man Jesus Christ with this amazing appellation or name given to him that closes out verse 20. Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. All of this reinforces that amazingly important fact that I shared with you earlier. That Jesus Christ is the epicenter of the entire universe. Everything is collapsing in on him. God is reconciling, in a positive way, the entire world to himself through your worship here today and the worship of other faithful churches on this Sunday and your gospel ministrations in the world. Reconciling the world to himself through his Son, Jesus Christ, as per the glorious words of 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. Now, how does the Father do this reconciliation? Well, he does it positively through the Holy Spirit's work of applying the atonement of Jesus Christ's blood and resurrection to the hearts and souls of all the elect who come from every tribe, nation, ethnicity, and people group, let alone every place on earth. So even this very Sunday, God is harvesting a whole new group of souls to himself. You know, the Gnostics, who said they knew everything, are really shutting their mouths here as John is saying what we know in these verses. They denied Jesus Christ's divinity and actually his real humanity. John here clearly affirms it. May we do the same. The essential truths we know as regenerated churchmen. Huge difference between God's children and Satan's slaves. Everything in all creation centers on our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, that our flesh remains a challenge for us even as we undergo sanctification. Verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Isn't that interesting that John would end this little epistle with that phrase seemingly from out of of the blue. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Remember, he was the elderly pastor writing to these churches in this general Catholic epistle. And he wants his people to understand how important this is. What do we learn about idolatry here in this little verse 21? That it remains a stubborn, persistent problem. Uh, Many of you are gardeners, at least some of you are. You know that weeds just keep coming back. You can put the the uh, weed killer on if you're really brave. You can put um, this other stuff on if you're a little less brave. You can do everything you can try to do to kill the weeds, 
but they just seek to take root again, and that's the way idolatry is in the heart. Uh, This is always a problem. This is why we do what we do in church the way we do it. Idolatry must be nipped in the bud in the faithful church on Sunday in the worship services. Nothing may be done here that would foster any kind of root of idolatry. Everything must be done according to God's word. The standard gets set here. The gardening, the hoe, everything, the weeds get whacked out here so that from here we can go into our lives, our families, our lives, and also root out the weeds of idolatry and keep fighting them off Sunday to Sunday. Guarantee you, we have to come back to church on Sunday, not just because we want to or it's the right thing to do or the socially acceptable thing or what our families expect, but because we need to, because we have to root out those idols again, those weeds. When John says, keep yourselves from idols, he's telling us to take an active, even proactive stance and to militantly and diligently whack away at idols. And don't be easy on them. Let us take them down. All of us Christians, every single one of us, even us who are regenerated, who have grown in grace, who have been humbled, who have come a long way, who have a long way to go, all of us have some favorite idolatry idol. Everyone does, and we all do. We all have a besetting sin, and those are usually the things we confess in our confessional time. That's also that idol. We have to keep whacking it, defeating it, pummeling it, and destroying it. And isn't it interesting that in God's wonderful providence, we read those words we did from the Westminster Confession of Faith today? I didn't even plan that. Again, an amazing providence where it says, yeah, the the flesh remains a problem. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing our Westminster divines, our Puritan fathers, who say something like, yeah, it's still a problem. And it's going to keep being a problem, but we do get mastery over it. Remember, it doesn't rule us, we rule it. It's a problem, though, and that's why John closes this epistle this way. Now, the temptation a lot of times is for us to say, yeah, I sure see idols in that person, that person. That's not the point. We need to look at them in ourselves and do the whacking there. And that's an important part of our sanctification process. So John closes out this book with the words, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I don't think he used the word idolatry anywhere else in the whole book. You can check it out. I didn't. I I don't think so. Let's do a little more application this morning and understand why the true God and eternal life, Jesus Christ, is the first love for all the saints. You know that knowledge even of God himself is no good if it doesn't result in love for God. Now, I will argue, and I'm actually going to argue it in this application section, that a regenerate knowledge of God inevitably leads to love for God. A true knowledge of God necessitates love for God. If you know God through Jesus Christ by grace, you do love him. Now, you might be saying, boy, I sure don't feel like it, blah, blah. But trust me, you do. You need to learn how to enjoy that love and appreciate it and foster it. Because it's your inheritance. 
The goal or end of all life is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself is love personified. As per many verses, I'll just give you one, Ephesians 1.6, where he's called the Beloved. The end or goal even of God's commandments is not that we do a bunch of right things and avoid sin, even though that's part of it. The end or goal of all God's commandments, even the Ten Commandments, is love for God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, as per Mark 12, 29, and 30. Therefore, it makes perfectly good sense that we, the faithful by grace alone church, would carefully contemplate why the true God and eternal life, Jesus Christ, is the first love for all the saints. Now, the reason I say that is you cannot know the Father or the Holy Spirit except through the God-man, Jesus Christ. In a very real sense, chronologically, Jesus Christ is the first love of the Holy Trinity that we latch on to. Granted, the Holy Trinity is always united. We understand that. But just looking at it from that angle, I hope you see that. We are actually first introduced to this Holy Trinity through the God-man, Jesus Christ. And the church is nestled in the heart of God through Christ's humanity, his human nature. Why is the true God and eternal life the first love? Because God has purchased us with his blood. You know, there's, you don't love God for no reason. You don't love God in a vacuum. You don't love God just because you ought to love God. You don't love God because it's obligated upon you. You love God for very good reasons. You have all the rationale in the world to love him. What drives your love more than anything else is the work of Christ on your behalf. What he did for you on the cross and in his resurrection, his ascension, and his intercession at the Father's right hand for you right now. The personal work. God bought or purchased you. Back in the old days, some of the ancient uh, early Christian theologians thought that the atonement was purchasing us from Satan. That's not the atonement. But we are purchased. From what are we purchased? What, from what did God purchase us, free us from? Sin, hell, damnation. And he did it through the shed blood of his own dear and beloved son. This is why the elect and redeemed human beings on the earth in the church love God, and they love him well. They love God for a good reason. Their sins have been completely, thoroughly, utterly, absolutely remitted in the priceless blood of Jesus Christ, who effused that precious blood from his own body, suffering on the cruel cross for you and for me and for every elect saint in the church. Are your sins forgiven in Jesus Christ's atonement of you? If they are, then, whether you realize it or not, you love God in Christ Jesus. Why the true God and eternal life, Jesus Christ, is the first love for all the saints, because God has purchased us with his blood and... Our forgiven hearts are free in him. There's the redeemed people of God's church have a liberation of the heart and soul that's almost impossible to describe, especially to those who haven't experienced it. And one of my 
jobs as a pastor, as your minister, is to try to convince you how free, how happy, how liberated you can be in Christ Jesus. That's a tough job because there's every force in the world against us saying, oh, no, 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 no. I've just got to be as miserable as everybody else, but not you. Do you realize, and this is a true statement, a person that is in this freedom in Jesus Christ may be placed in the worst circumstances in life. The very worst, think of the most terrible, utterly horrible circumstances you could be placed in. And that human being could still be utterly free and even joyful in Jesus Christ. The reason for this is circumstances have nothing to do with joy, happiness, freedom, or life. Nothing. We should know this by now. We should understand that people in the world who seemingly have everything are so miserable. Because circumstances have nothing to do with it. Nothing at all. We could be placed in the absolute most terrible situation. I don't even care where you are. You can have a liberty of heart that's amazing. Somebody out there might be saying, well, Pastor, I sure would like to have that. How do I experience it? My response is this. Ask God for it in Jesus Christ. Ask him. See if he won't answer you. You know, in the entire history of humanity, God has never rejected anyone who's asked him for his son in sincerity. Or ask them for freedom, joy, peace, grace, and every other good thing in sincerity. 100% track record. You want all your prayers answered? Ask God for the most important things. Then everything else will appear pretty insignificant in comparison. Our problem is we're always thinking of those little subordinate things. Oh God, give me this, give me that, give me blah, give me my health, give me blah blah, give me a job, give me this. Blah, 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 blah. Not that those things aren't important. I'm not saying they aren't, but relatively speaking, they're of no significance, especially in the big scope of things, because we're all going to die. Stand before the judgment seat of God. Ask God for Christ. And in him, the emancipation of heart and soul that he gives everyone who loves him. Just ask him. Go home this afternoon and ask him. He won't deny you. And then share this with other people you know that are really hurting. Ask him. Here's a great and characteristic promise in this regard. comes from our Messiah's own lips. Uh, The Gospel of Luke Chapter 11, verse 13. He said, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit, a great gift, to those who ask Him? Ask, seek, knock. Many of us today will feast at the sacramental table of the Lord's Supper, and some of us will observe that feast. But all of us will be reminded there of the grace and goodness of God toward his elect church, in his son shedding his blood for us and giving his body for us. And as we hear this gospel sermon here today, let us place all our faith in that blessed Redeemer,
The true God and eternal life is Jesus Christ in the flesh. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all represented under the title, The True God and Eternal Life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that that's true, that we have the true God and eternal life in the Son of God himself. And now we get a feast at his table and enjoy your glorious wonder and beauty. Thank you. You've given us so much. We could never thank you enough, but we do return our praise to you. All in Jesus, your glorious Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.